It's Baby Crazy. I'm Lee Schneider. Dr. Donna Matthews is a developmental psychologist and author with Dr. Joanna Foster of Beyond Intelligence, Secrets for Raising Happily Productive Kids. She has been involved in teaching, writing, counseling, consulting, and conducting research on children and adolescents since 1985. She has taught child and adolescent development at the University of Toronto and Hunter College, City University of New York, and writes a parenting blog for Psychology Today. We're going to be talking today about intelligence in kids and asking what is intelligence, how do you define it, encourage it, and develop it. Here's my conversation with Donna Matthews. Donna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. At the start of your book, you have this great quiz. I want to run down a few of those questions. You'll tell me the answers, and we'll talk about it a bit. One of the first questions you ask in the book in this little quiz is, by the time a child is three years old, their intelligence level is set for life. Is that true or false? That's absolutely false. Hmm. Yeah, it's a common misconception. What is very true about this is that those first three years are extremely important for building the brain. So there's a whole lot going into the child's experience in those first three years that are going to make a difference to their subsequent intelligence. However, the more that is learned about the brain and how it develops and neuroplasticity and the actual measurement of intelligence even, the more research scientists are coming to the conclusion that Intelligence is something that develops over time with opportunities to learn. So it's not static. It's never set. It's always developing. The brain is always capable of change. So by the time a kid is three years old, there's a whole lot of learning, really important learning that has gone on. But how smart they are or how capable they seem to be at that stage is only a very rough indicator of what's going to happen in the future. So that means when our child is three, our job as parents just isn't over. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's more to be done. There's quite a bit more to be done. Absolutely. How about this one? Parents should protect their children from setbacks, obstacles, and experiences of failure. Is that true or false? Okay. In general, it's false. The true part is, I think it's a parent's job to keep their children safe. So if it's about their safety, yeah, it's important to protect. However, it's through setbacks, obstacles, and failures that people learn. If people are protected from setbacks... They never learn how to deal with them. So continuing to learn and grow and develop requires mistakes and failures. And then paying attention to those and saying, huh, what do I have to learn about this? So that attitude of welcoming failure is what makes the difference between somebody who does continue to learn and grow and tends to be a lot more successful than somebody who tries to avoid setbacks and failures. Right. That's very interesting. Someone who understands that failure is going to come with the territory, that's going to be a more resilient person, a person who's willing to change versus the risk adverse person who will probably learn less. Exactly. And in fact, it is good to embrace or welcome failure. There's been a whole lot of research done on this showing that people who do 
look at failures as learning opportunities and therefore actively welcome failure, celebrate failure. I mean, nobody feels good when they fail, but to take something that it would be really easy to see this as a failure, to take that and say, okay, what can I learn from this? And therefore thank the universe for giving me this failure opportunity. People who do that, the research shows really conclusively, do a whole lot better in their lives in every way, academically, professionally, financially, psychologically, in relationships, sort of every domain of life is enriched by that embracing a failure kind of attitude. Yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> That's yeah, for we sure. live in a culture that doesn't support that. You know, we live in a culture where we're embarrassed by our setbacks and our failures. People try to hide them. How about this one? Highly intelligent children have more social and emotional problems than other kids. True or false? Okay. Again, sort of as with the other two questions, the overall answer is that is false. Again, it's another one of those widely held misconceptions about high intelligence, that people who are highly intelligent are weird, they're more volatile, you know, they're more likely to have problems with mental illness, for example. But in fact, the research again is really clear saying that intelligence and social emotional development are pretty independent in their development. So you get people who have really good social and emotional strength who are also extremely intelligent. You also get people who are extremely intelligent who have terrible problems socially and or emotionally. So those two things, high intelligence and social emotional development, are independently developing variables. The only connection between those two things, high intelligence and social emotional problems, is that sometimes, especially with young children, it's hard to find friends of your own age. So it's hard for extremely advanced kids to connect with kids who are developing in a more normal way. And it's a temporary thing because as people grow older, they're more and more likely to find people to match, people who share their way of looking at the world. Let's go there for a second because you can see that a six-year-old kid who's highly intelligent would be a bit of a fish out of water and that the differences between a four-year-old and a six-year-old and a six-year-old and eight-year-old are huge mm -hmm. versus, you know, the differences between a 30 and a 35-year-old. How do you help that highly intelligent child get a cohort going and make friends? Every situation is so different. Mm -hmm. Every child is so different, so unique in their development across a number of areas. But sort of a basic principle is that four or a six or an eight-year-old is about so much more than their intelligence. So let's take an extremely gifted six-year-old who's speaking and thinking much more like a nine-year-old than like other six-year-olds, okay? Mm -hmm. So there is so much more happening in that six-year-old's life than the cognitive dimension. So that little kid is also developing socially, emotionally, physically, so that six-year-old can play baseball with other six-year-olds and do just fine. 
So make friends who are six-year-old baseball players. That kid can learn music, can learn all kinds of other things that at that six-year-old level, they're going to be reading different things. They're going to be asking different questions of their teachers, but the other domains are really a lot more important at that stage. Mm. It's important that they have areas where they're going at their own pace intellectually. That can be extracurricular, or it can be in a school situation. Some kids with some personalities who are extremely advanced intellectually really have a hard time socially until they find intellectual peers. So for some of those kids, they're going to need a special gifted class environment, or they're going to need extracurricular activities that keep them engaged. This really brings on the idea of looking at the whole person, yeah. a child as a whole person. And it brings on the question, how do we define intelligence, particularly when we're talking about kids? There's so many ways to think about intelligence. I think for a lot of people, they use IQ or a score on a test as their sort of short form understanding of what intelligence is. But the more that people who spend their lifetime working in this field think about it, and I would include myself in that, you know, I'm one of those professionals who spent decades thinking about what is intelligence. The more I and many other people think about it, the more we say, well, you know, it's really hard to pin it down. There's a lot of different definitions. And so the definition that I've come to in my own work is that intelligence is the ability to understand complex ideas, to adapt effectively to environments, you know, changing environments, to overcome obstacles as we encounter them, to engage meaningfully in various forms of reasoning, and to learn from the experiences that we have. It is not static. It's something that develops incrementally, step by step by step. Intelligence develops in a whole number of different domains. It makes better sense, I think, to think of a profile of intelligence across a number of different areas. So you might have really highly developed mathematical or scientific or linguistic intelligence and have really bad or less developed social and emotional or musical or some other kind of intelligence. It's not all a bunch of horses running in at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. You could have emotional intelligence is way out in front. You could have number intelligence out in front or anything, right? So it's got a lot of sides to it. This is a podcast with an audience of parents over 40. So I want to talk about how different, really, a young child's mind is from the mind of his or her 40-plus parents. Young children, obviously, right, they see the world very differently than we do. Should we try to bridge the gap? How do we bridge the gap? Should we even try? Yes, you're so right. The mind of a 40-year-old adult is worlds apart from the mind of a baby or an infant or a toddler or a young child. And so, yeah, there is a step down necessary. The parent's mind and brain is really well developed to handle complex ideas and complex reasoning and a whole lot of things all at once, whereas the baby's brain, the child's brain, is just developing. 
So you've got this highly complex brain on the one hand and this brain that's just beginning to develop on the other. And the way to bridge that gap is through, it sounds so simple, but the more that people study the brain, the more they come down to the essential ingredient is love. That sounds so trite, but by loving your child, by being present, by being calm and patient and loving, by listening to your child, just being present to the kid, listening, you won't go wrong. I'm just digesting that for a moment because it's clear that children really want to be witnessed, seen, heard. Yes, exactly. And among the most valuable things you can do as a parent is seek to understand your child in their own way, because the uniqueness of the child is a big factor here. That's really well said. Exactly. That's really exactly, that's the secret. It's so easy to talk about and so hard to do. (laughs) It sounds so simple, right? But for that 40-year-old or 45-year-old brain, it's really hard to step it down and forget all the intellectual stuff and just be present. As you say, the child craves being witnessed, being seen, being listened to, being understood. And that's hard in our very fast-paced world. To slow it down, to be present to a child, requires a lot of disciplined patience. The older we get, the harder that is to learn. One of the concerns for somebody who doesn't become a parent until they're older, till they're 40, say, or older, one of the concerns is you've got this whole lifetime behind you of being the owner of your own life, being the author of your own life, of deciding moment to moment, day to day, what you're going to put your energy into. Well, all of a sudden, when you have a little child, if you're going to do a good job of that, you have to let all of that go. It is really hard. I think in some ways, Younger parents have a big advantage because they don't have their way of living their life as set as an older parent. I think it's more of a challenge for an older parent to slow it down and to truly listen, to be present to the young child. At the same time, I think there are big advantages to being older because, in fact, You don't have the impatience that younger people have of getting on in your own career. The energy isn't as directed into the world. People, as they enter their 40s, they have the capacity to become more reflective. And that is really, really good for children. And it's one of the reasons that grandparents can be so important to little children. Grandparents typically or hopefully understand how critically important those early years are. And so don't have the trouble stepping their energy down to the child level. Grandparents have a great strength in being able to take a moment and really be there. Exactly. And that's what I think that older parents, so people in their 40s, are a lot better able to do that than parents in their 20s, for example. Yeah, it's kind of a mixed bag. You know, I maybe a few years ago, I could say unequivocally that the older parent is more settled in their job, settled in their life. That's the liability because they're less willing to change. But the positive side of that is 
They can take some time to be with a child. The household is more stable. The relationships are more stable, which all sounds true. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. In the work environment of today, a lot of us, maybe we're restarting a a whole new career at age 40. I Maybe know. things are changing for us at age 40 or 50 even. Absolutely. So there's not that kind of, oh, I've got this. Now I can pay attention to the kid. Yeah. It's that divided attention issue, which is the bane of everyone's existence at the moment. Trying to find enough time to just be present is really difficult. Yeah, that is so true. I think that is the challenge for all parents in our crazy fast world. The liabilities of the older parent would have something to do with being a bit set in your ways, decided this is the way the life is going to go. And mm -hmm. then this kid comes in with a completely different agenda and a completely different storyline, and you have to adjust. Yep. It's really hard for a lot of people. And I think the older we get, the harder it is. There's that thing, as I said, of, well, I've got this. You know, I know how I do stuff. I've decided. Exactly, exactly. It doesn't really work like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You talk in the book very interestingly about, in quotes, smashing the crystal ball, coming to terms about how we can't really predict who our children will become in later life. But that's the motivation for most parents. You know, you say, hey, my kid is brilliant. So therefore, I'm going to keep giving this parenting gig my all. I'm going to give this brilliant kid everything I've got. Parents probably don't want to hear that their brilliant toddler may not turn out to be super brilliant later in life or will turn out to be brilliant in a different way. And they may be confused that their struggling kid could turn out to be just fine. So with all those variables, with all that complexity... How do we motivate parents to keep encouraging their children, whether it's the development of intelligence, and how do we kind of unhook this sort of get them to not consult their crystal ball? The answer to that question lies in the question itself. I think that by understanding that intelligence is dynamic, it is not static. Intelligence develops over time with opportunities to learn. So the fact that you've got a kid who's doing really well right now looks to be a little genius. That is fantastic. But there's a whole lot of responsibility then to continue to provide learning opportunities and appropriate challenges for that child. So what I see, because for many years I had a private practice where I worked with families who had issues around giftedness. So kids who were really smart, all sorts of demonstrations of that. But then there was some sort of a problem with that in one way or another. And one of the issues that I saw over and over again with parents was a sense, my kid is really smart. He should be doing really well in everything. Well, no, your kid did really well in grade one and two and three. And now the challenges are different. And now maybe he's really needing to learn more about the social world, how to get along with other kids. He has something else going on in his mind. And my recommendation to parents is don't get stuck in thinking about test scores. For one example, I've seen a lot of that. Parents get a high IQ score and they think the kid is set for life. Well, no, hmm. that kid did really well on that test on that day. And that's terrific. It does show a capacity for doing that kind of work at that kind of level. 
So that's great. That's worth celebrating. However, the child's brain is continuing to develop. So it's not over yet. The important message to all parents, whether your kids look like they're little geniuses or look like they're not doing okay at all, is be positive. Understand that their brain is developing. It will continue to develop all through their lives. And you as the parent make a big difference in how well that will happen. Give them the love. Listen to them. Respond to them. Again, back to those basic building blocks of good parenting. It's just being present, calm, patient, and trusting that your child will find their way with your support. So, I mean, you see among parents and among people in education, this idea that once a kid has a high IQ, then they're set for life. They're smart. They're a genius. And in fact, yeah, maybe (laughs) (laughs) sometimes, but it's a work in progress. And that's the important message for all parents. No matter how well your kid is doing right now, they're a work in progress. They're going to need you for a long, long time, and they're going to need to be understood as a dynamic human being, somebody who's learning and growing and changing all the time. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. Yeah. So to a parent, you know, one of my my sort of frequent messages is be open to change, be open to, you know, a kid who's extremely interested in math as a little kid may or may not stay interested in math. By the time the kid is 15, they may have shifted to music or social stuff or the arts. You just don't know. So be open to change. I wanted to ask about dealing with the super smart, super talkative kind of kid. You know, where a kid has the words, has a huge vocabulary, His or her mind is always going. They may even have trouble falling asleep. They're always ideating, always concepting, always working on stuff. And they're driving everybody just a little bit crazy, you know, because they'll talk your ear off. Now, this could be a really good trait later, you know, that kind of inquisitive, relentless intelligence. But right now, when you're trying to get out the door in the morning to go to school, It's like I can't answer 12,000 questions or I can't make dinner while answering all these questions about what heat does and things like that. What do you do? Again, I think the answer to that question is also in the question itself. So as the parent, you do have things you need to do. So you need to get yourself and the child out the door in the morning. So what you can do, what I would do with a child like that, and one of mine was like that, I set a time. So, okay, sweetie, and make sure like you schedule this in because it's important to them and it's important to their development that they have time for the questions. We've got 10 minutes before we go to school. Let's talk and make sure that happens often enough that, you know, so maybe three times a day for a child who's like super inquisitive. So make sure you schedule it in, right? So that would be thing number one that I would say. But then sort of thing number two is there are a lot of ways to address those questions as you're making dinner, as you're eating dinner, as you're proceeding with daily life, taking that child shopping. Make sure you schedule more time for the shopping expedition because they're going to need to explore. Again, I guess this goes back to the importance of patience with children. 
with a child like that, your job is harder. It's more interesting, but with a highly inquisitive, highly talkative child who wants to know everything, it is exhausting and it's worth spending the time and energy on. And as I say, scheduling it in and also understanding that a lot of those questions can be answered as you go through your daily routine. What if I, as a parent, I'm convinced that my kid is smart, but I'm not seeing it manifested in the usual in-the-box ways, like, you know, maybe the schoolwork is not so great or the tests and evaluations are not so great. How do we recognize this unorthodox smartness and these unusual abilities that don't often get recognized by the system, if you will, and nurture them? I think any parent who asks themselves that question will find the answers. It's the right question to ask. A child who isn't doing well in conventional ways, like academically, typically is what we're thinking about, or test scores, can be extremely smart and capable. And as long as the parent or somebody else, but hopefully the parent, is asking the question, not how smart is my kid, but how is my child smart? So what are the domains in which this kid can excel? So following their curiosity, giving them opportunities to engage with a wide variety of activities, seeing what the kid is interested in, giving them opportunities to explore that, develop it. So again, you know, I have to say it goes back to this listen thing. Be patient and listen to your kid. Provide all these opportunities for engagement and just see what works. Hear what they have to say. Not how smart my child is, but how my child is smart. Exactly. That's really interesting. Yeah, Yeah, that's really cool stuff. If there's one thing that is the takeaway that we want people to come away with from this conversation, what do you think it should be? I think it has to do with that be loving. It sounds, you know, as I said before, it sounds so trite. But by being present to your child and listening to them, you're going to be doing the very best job of supporting their intelligence as it develops. Donna, thanks so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Look for Donna's book, Beyond Intelligence, Secrets for Raising Happily Productive Kids on Amazon. And she writes a parenting blog for Psychology Today. Look for show notes about this episode at goingbabycrazy.live. That's goingbabycrazy.live. I will also post a transcript of the show and some key takeaways right there online. So check out goingbabycrazy.live. A lot of people get the show on iTunes. And if that's you, please don't forget to rate us and post a comment. When you do that, it helps us reach more listeners. Give us some stars. Share the love. And by the way, I'd like to hear from you directly. The listener feedback line is 424 424- 254-1634. That's 424-254-1634. Just dial that up and leave your comments about the show. Are you listening to us on Anchor? Anchor.fm is a fun way to receive the show and some short-form materials I'm putting up there. And there is a message button at the end of every segment that you can use to talk to me and comment. Use it if you're on Anchor. You can also listen to the show on Simplecast, Stitcher, and Google Play. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. I'm Lee Schneider.
Music for Baby Crazy was composed by Tom Disher. Episodes edited by Lee Schneider and Kay Vermeil. Baby Crazy is a production of Red Cup Agency. Hey, it's Lee Schneider, a co-founder of the FutureX Podcast Network. Have you heard of Good Pods yet? It's a new app where you can follow your friends and influencers to see what podcasts they're listening to. So for all of you who spend too much time scrolling around, trying to figure out where is that great new show, this will solve your problems. Just download Good Pods from the App Store, pick some people to follow, and invite your friends. And you'll never be without a podcast recommendation again.